0: My name is Caleb. I serve here as one of the pastors here at Desert Springs, and uh, today we're going to continue in our sermon series called Family Business. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, and if you guys would like a Bible, you can grab one off the tables in the back, turn with me to Matthew Matthew, uh, chapter 1. But as we do that, as we gear up for that, you guys turn there with me. Uh, I want to give you a couple of quick updates. Number one, last week uh, we prayed for John Cavell, uh, who we brought up prayed over him, and he had a kidney transplant. His daughter gave him one of her kidneys. We have a, I think a picture from the hospital. It was a raving success, and uh, she 's been discharged he 's still healing up. Uh, thank you guys for praying and for your support uh, he 's going to be in California for a few weeks as he kind of gears up um, and heals up and he 's looking forward to getting back and Uh, hanging with us uh, here after he heals up. Number two, uh, we've been talking as uh, we've gone through this series. One of the things that we've noted is that Jesus puts us together not, um, not primarily as just a bunch of individuals, but he weaves the church together as a family. So when we talk about family business, we're not just talking about what goes on in the home. We're talking about what goes on in the household of God, namely the church. And so I wanted to encourage you, if you're newer to Desert Springs, a couple of things. If you're newer to Desert Springs been here, maybe this is your first time, maybe you're checking out, maybe you've been checking it out for a couple few weeks. Uh, we have a starting point class, uh, excuse me, a starting point dinner that's coming up this Thursday. In the back of the seat in front of you, you should see a ministry guy that looks like this, and there's information in there on our starting point dinner. Uh, I'll be there. Some of our other staff members will be there. It's a great opportunity to learn more about Desert Springs, learn more uh, about what our, what our beliefs are, what our vision is for the future, and how you can get connected. But if you've called Desert Springs your church home, uh, maybe you're kind of convinced you like it at Desert Springs, you are in line with the mission, values, and vision, I would encourage you to join me for one of our next membership classes. So membership is a way that we say I'm all in. Uh, in a consumer-based society, we can fall into the temptation or trap that I go to church, and the church is a dispenser of religious goods and services, but the the truth of the matter is, and the scriptures teach, that the church is a family committed to one another, and membership is a way that we in an individualistic society can commit to one another, to love one another, to pray for one another, support one another, and the mission of our uh, our collective mission is a church family. If you want to know more about what it means to be a covenant member of Desert Springs, join me for one of our next membership classes. Again, in that ministry guide in the back of the seat in front of you, you can find links and more information there. Now, we've been talking about family business, and today we're going to talk about families in conflict. So I don't know, this may not be relevant to you, (laughs) because I see your Facebook posts, and evidently your family is perfect. I see the pictures, I see the vacation notes, I see the recitals, I see all the, the family photos, and, and uh, evidently I'm the only one with mess in my family. So this is just for me. I don't know if this is going to be relevant to you. Maybe you've heard about other families that have conflicts, so you could maybe get some notes and give it to them. I don't know. You, you guys got any mess in your family? Yeah, you got to talk back to me now you got to talk back to me. You guys are liars. You're lying to me on Facebook. You all got mess in your family? Yeah. Yeah. We all have mess in our family. Each of us have a level, to one degree or the other, of dysfunction and destruction and mess in our families. In fact, Martin Luther King Jr. said this in the middle of the 20th century, there is a civil war in progress in which the parents are revolting against each other, and the children are revolting against their parents. In the modern family, individualism has gone mad. He goes on to say later that there is an individualism which destroys the individual. We live in an individualistic culture that tends to focus in on itself and it can oftentimes cause dysfunction and conflict in our family. And so uh, perhaps some of us think, well, we don't, we don't yell and scream in my family. And there There's conflict that's loud, and then there's conflict that's underground. There's conflict that screams, and there's conflict that mopes. There's conflict that shakes their fist in the air, and there's conflict that passive-aggressively fights against the flourishing of a family member. There's conflict in family. So what do we do? Well, we may find, as we engage in today's text, some of the sources of our conflict. And of course, figuring out the sources of our conflict is helpful, but it is not an end in and of itself. And so hopefully we'll end our time together today with a source of hope for our brokenness and our families. Amen. And I know what you're thinking, Caleb, I know you're going to point me to the Bible. I know that we're going to study the Bible today, and you're right. You're saying, Pastor Caleb, give me some hope for my family. Okay. We're going to look at a genealogy. Didn't see that coming, did you? We're going to look at the first page in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1 at a genealogy. And perhaps in this genealogy of mess, we might be able to help recognize some of the sources of our conflict and a source of hope. Matthew 1 records the genealogy of mess. This is uh, uh, Matthew 1, verses 1. I'm going to read, we'll read a few here, and then maybe we'll stop if we see anything noteworthy. Uh, We could probably throw it up on their screen, so you guys follow along with me. Here we go. You guys ready? An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I know you're riveted. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Now, now notice if anything in the rhythm changes here. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. What do we have there? We now have mom entering into the picture. Now, as far as ancient genealogies go, this is extremely odd. It It is very odd for moms to show up in the genealogies. I'm not arguing that that's the right thing. I'm just telling you that in ancient genealogies, it is odd that moms show up especially when the common verb here is fathered, fathered, fathered. So there must be some reason that we see, Mom, here's Tamar, and we have Judah and Tamar. And this is an account, uh, we find their story in the book of Genesis. Now, <clears throat> real quick, we're going, we're, the, 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 oh boy, okay, so uh, do you guys know what Jerry Springer is? You remember Jerry Springer? <laughs> How many of y'all uh, at least have heard about Jerry Springer show? Okay, Jerry Springer's show, he'll bring people on, and it's usually an expose on family mess. And so uh, the genealogy of Jesus here in Matthew 1 plays like a Jerry Springer show, and you're going to see why. Now, you may actually be ready to gasp. In fact, we could practice. (sighs) And you may even want to talk back and say, that's messed up. Just get ready. Now here's the account of Judah and Tamar. Judah had three sons. How many sons did he have? Three. One, two, three. And Tamar married the oldest one, the oldest son, and then he died. And then, as was their custom, she was promised to marry the second son, who was now the oldest, and she did. And then guess what happened to him? He died. Now there's a third son, the last son. Now Judah, in his culture, in his time, sons were extremely important. They were your retirement. They were your livelihood. They were your future. And so what is the common thread as Judah is watching his sons die? Tamar. So Tamar says, as is our custom, when am I going to marry Junior? Now, what do you think Judah's feeling? Mm-mm-mm. Devil woman. So here's what Judah does. As is his custom, he promises the youngest son to her it says when he's old enough but he grows up and Tamar notices he ain't put a ring on the finger there's a problem here judah is not living up to his commitments my father in law is not living up to his commitments here i am stuck i'm a young woman i'm a widow he won't give me the youngest son and so what she decides to do is this she recognizes that judah takes a she recognizes his path home he goes past uh, a specific place in their community where there was prostitution. So, uh, yeah, so she dresses up like a prostitute and she waits for him. And when he, her father-in-law, told you, when the father-in-law comes by, uh, what Tamar does is she goes after Judah and invites him in and he's like, "Eh, you know, sure. So they, okay, we're gonna edit it. Okay, he, they, and then She's, he's like, oh, I got, you know, I got, I, I'm out of cash, I can't pay you. So what he says to her is, I want to pay you, but I, I left my money back home. And she says, okay, give me your staff and your signet ring. I, this is your identification. Give me your driver's license until you pay me, and then I'll release those things. It's like when you rent a, a, a pool table at a bar. You got to leave that driver's license to make sure you pay. You guys with me on that? Okay. So she's got the driver's license. She got the signet ring and the staff. Now. <clears throat> He sends a servant back. Servant comes back to him and says, I can't find that, that prostitute that you with. And so he's like, whatever, you know. I, I lost my staff and ring." Now, the months roll on, and lo and behold, you're going <clears> to <throat> gasp here. Lo and behold, she's pregnant. With who, who's the daddy? Father-in-law. That's You're like, where, what kind of a church is this? That's in the Bible. People talk about biblical families. I wonder what you mean. You know, Do you have a biblical marriage? Well, it depends. <laughs> Which part of the Bible are you talking about? Okay, so here, she's now pregnant. Now, she ain't married, and she's in Judah's household, and this, in that culture, would have brought shame on the family. They would have gasped, and they would have picked up rocks. In fact, she it's revealed that she is pregnant, and Judas says, kill her. He's operating on shame, fear, disappointment. His expectations have not been met. What drove her to dress up like a prostitute, her expectations had not been met. Now, what ends up happening is Judas says, kill her. She's like, you want to know who the daddy is? Driver's license, And so Judah says, woe unto me, she is more righteous than I. You see, there's conflict in our families, and there may be some of us who have had this happen in our families, many of us have not, but all of us have had conflict based on unmet expectations. You see, what drove both Judah and Tamar to deceit and to sin and to anger and to arguing they didn't keep their end of the bargain. They didn't do what they said they would do. They did not live up to my expectations. Now, let me just take a quick pause, because some of you guys are, you guys are you're like, where's this going, Pastor? Because some of us have righteous expectations... That have not been met. But I want to encourage you to just for a moment consider that perhaps the cause of some of our conflict is because our expectations have not been met. He said he would. She said she would stop doing this. He said he'd quit doing that. She said she would go to ASU, but instead went to U of A. (laughs) Foolishness. He embarrassed me. She betrayed me. Righteous or not, I'm not not here to say that some of those expectations are righteous or unrighteous. I just want you to hear me on this, that it may well be that the cause or source of some of our conflict in our families is unmet expectations. Because they do not meet our expectations, what can tend to happen in our disappointment is that we can begin to angle, we can begin to deceive and manipulate in order to what? Change not my expectations, but change what? Change them. Are those that you are in conflict with meeting your expectations, and is that the source of the conflict? Again, it may be a righteous expectation. I, 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 we're not there yet. They're not living up to my dreams for them. James 4.1 says this, What is the source of wars and fights among you? You're right, James. What is the source? It's them, right? They are at fault, James. No, James says this, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. Do you desire expectations from those in your family that when unmet cause conflict? A good question to ask, you may write this down if you're having or have ever had or may in the future possibly even have conflict. You may write this diagnostic question down. Is this conflict? Because my expectations are not met. Even if they're righteous expectations, we still must note that my expectations are not met. Tim Keller says this, he's a pastor in New York. If every spouse says to the other, I will treat my selfishness as the main problem in the marriage you have the prospect for great things. If every spouse says to the other, I will treat my selfishness as the main problem in the marriage, you have the prospect for great things. That could easily be applied to friendship, to parent-child relationships. One of the key sources, one of the key problems is not outside of me, but it's my desire for what I want. I spend a lot of time with couples before uh, they get married, and I'm not going to bring it. For those of you that I've officiated your wedding, don't worry. I'm not bringing up you. It's the other people, the ones that aren't here that I'm going to talk about. One of the things that will usually come up is to, to one degree or the other, someone will say, I see this imperfection in them now, but once we get married, I'm going to change them. Now, it may, nobody is ever so bold as to say that out loud but you know it when you see it. You know, they're bad with money now, but once we get married, I'm going to change them. You know, they're really bad with timeliness right now, but once we get married, I'm going to change them. They may exhibit the besetting sins of their family, but once we get married, I'm going to change them. Now, for those that not all of us are married, some of us that are married, some of us have been married for a while. How's it working out? It don't, because you can't change nobody but your own self, which is great because most of the time, part of the problem, most of the problem exists inside of me, But, but I want what's best for them. I want what's best for them. That's why I'm trying to change them. So number one, I just want to encourage you, you can't change nobody. That's Jesus' job. Stop applying for the role. (laughs) Number two, do you want what you think is best for them, or do you want what God knows is best for them? Because God may be doing something that really makes you annoyed. God may be shaping them in such a way that really... Just grinds your gears. And so do you really want what's best for them, what you think is best for them, or what God thinks is best for them? Is this conflict because my expectations are not being met? But it's their fault. But it's their fault. I would be happy if they would change. If they could just change, then I would be whole and joyous. I would find complete flourishing in life if they would just change. Let me tell you, no, you will not because they do not own your happiness and joy. It's not like they've got your happiness and joy in a little bottle and they just give it it to you in little doses. If they would just give you a little more of your own happiness, no, no, no. Your joy is found, if if you're a follower of Jesus, your joy is found entirely in Christ. But it's their fault. Now I wanna, yeah, listen, I'm in your neighborhood, I know I'm trampling, but we're not even halfway done with the sermon. It's going to get worse. I'd like for you guys uh, to pull out a piece of paper. On the back of your seats, there's prayer cards. You can use the back of one of those. This may be something you want to pray over. I'd like for all of you just pull out a piece of paper. If you have a tablet you want to draw on, that's fine too. Just pull out a piece of paper, grab a pen. Piece of paper, grab a pen. And I want you to draw a circle. If you draw a circle for me. Just draw a circle on that piece of paper. No tricks. You guys got the paper? Got the circle? You can draw it on your hand if you want to. You can imagine a circle and then make it become manifest later. But there's the circle, and what you're looking at is the, bla- the blame pie. It's a pie. Y'all ever seen a pie chart before? Yeah. Okay. Pie charts show you what percentage of the whole belongs where. So there you've got your, your blame pie. It's a tasty, delicious pie especially when you can serve it to others. There's your blame pie. Now, it's their fault. Okay. And your, your expectations have not been met. Okay. How much of the pie, the blame pie, what, what slice is yours? You see, most of us operate as if the whole pie is theirs. Or we fall into the temptation for some of us, to say it's entirely, 100% me. Very rarely are we able to recognize that there is enough of the blame pie to go around. At the end of the day, when my, listen, when my children rebel against me, whose fault is it? It's my fault, and their fault, and to a much smaller degree, my wife's fault, and she's not here, so I can say that. (laughs) Now, we shouldn't spend too much time trying to decide how much and how big the slices are. What I want you to see is this. If you think that you don't eat any part of the slice in our broken relationships, it may be that the conflict is not owned by you. Even for those of us that have been victims of very hurtful things, can find that in our victimhood, we have evil thoughts, perhaps we passive-aggressively rebel, perhaps we pursue vengeance instead of restoration. How much of the pie is yours? Is this conflict because my expectations are not met? Let's keep going in the story. It's going to get even more interesting. Uh, let's, do, uh, let's pick it up in verse 6. You guys ready? Here we go. And Jesse fathered David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Hold on a minute. That is messed up. Hold on a tick. Now, look right there at the top. Okay? <clears throat> We got King David, right? King David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Wait, whose wife? David's wife, right? You guys tell me. There's there's David, who's the dad, and then there's the mom, who's David's wife, right? No. The mom of Solomon is another man's wife, Gasp. So, you remember that whole, like, that's messed up thing? Here we go. We're going to talk about generational dysfunction. Here we go. David sees Bathsheba, who's Uriah's wife. She's already married. She's a married woman. And King David manipulates the circumstances and power rapes Bathsheba. He uses his power and his leverage to rape Bathsheba, and she gets pregnant. That is messed up. Now, David sleeps with Bathsheba. She, like Tamar, becomes pregnant out of that sin. And David does not want to be found out, does he? And so David, in order to cover up his sin, tries to convince Uriah, who's one of his generals, to come and sleep with his wife so he can be like, oh, it's your kid. Man, he really looks like David, not my baby, right? But Uriah, being a very good soldier, says, I will not go home to my wife while I'm on duty. And so what Uriah does is he sleeps outside the king's door because he's on duty. He's a good soldier. And David is frustrated. How do I cover up for my sin? And so what he does is he devises a plan and uses his power to manipulate the circumstances so that Uriah, who's one of his generals, is sent to the front of the line... And he tells Uriah's boss, King David tells Uriah's boss, in the heat of battle, everybody retreats so that Uriah can die. And that's exactly what happened. And that is messed up. Now, the story doesn't end there. We don't get this in the genealogy, but you can find it in the scriptures. David has children. He's got a son named Ammon, a daughter named Tamar, and a son named Absalom. And those sons mirror their father's sin. By the way, for those of us that are raising children, they are watching you. That sounded very threatening, didn't like? <laughs> well, in David's case, it was. Here we go. Ammon, perhaps in response to his father's relationship with Bathsheba, he sees, oh, that's how you do it. You just use your power and you manipulate the circumstances in order to find a lover. What Ammon, David's son, does is he manipulates the circumstances and rapes Tamar, his sister. And that is messed up. David does not respond, and that is messed up. And then Absalom, recognizing this, also seeing how David handles problems, namely through killing, Absalom manipulates the circumstances so that he can kill his own brother Ammon. The sons mirrored the sins of the father. Absalom sought vengeance for what happened, and he killed. He killed his flesh and blood, and then he tried to kill his dad. And David spent much of his later years running from his son. And that is messed And there are many of us who have conflict in our homes because we are seeking vengeance instead of restoration. We wanna be right at the expense of being righteous. We wanna win the debate at the expense of winning family. Andy Stanley, who's a pastor in the South, says this, when you win an argument in family, you don't win anything. My dad told me, son, in marriage, you can be right or you can be happy. (laughs) And, of course, that's my dad's way of saying you can seek vengeance or you can seek reconciliation and restoration. Now, I want to be clear. You guys got to be with me on this, okay? Eyeballs here. There are some of us who are here today hearing this and the idea of talking to the other person is so abhorrent, is so scary, or is just impossible. And I, want to just, I just want to say a few words to you. Especially for those of us who have been victims of abuse and specific types of abuse, when I say vengeance versus reconciliation, I do not mean that reconciliation is always possible. You with me on that? Reconciliation takes two or more. And there are occasions where it is not wise for you to go by yourself to the other person. You need a mediator or a moderator. You need somebody else, perhaps a counselor. So I need, you, I need to be very clear on this. This is not Pollyanna. This is not, if you just pray to Jesus and the relationship will be reconciled. I don't know why Yosemite Sam did that real quick right there. <laughs> there is this Pollyanna view that if you just pray enough, the relationship will be reconciled. That is not always the case. There are unreconciled relationships. But is the, is the inclination and trajectory of your heart towards vengeance or reconciliation? You cannot control the reconciliation, but you can control the trajectory of your heart. You with me on that, friends? I want to be very clear that perhaps the conflict is happening in your household because you're seeking vengeance instead of restoration. And so this is a diagnostic question. Is this conflict because I seek vengeance instead of restoration? Are we having this conflict because I am seeking to be right instead of righteous, to be the one who wins the argument at the expense of the family? Is this conflict because I seek vengeance instead of restoration? The scripture straight up says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. There will be justice. Make no mistake. The wrongs done to us, there will be justice. But the vengeance is the Lord's, not ours to take. But they disrespect me, but they, they cut me off, but they hurt me, but they didn't meet my expectations, but they, you know, I don't want anything to do with them anymore. And so, uh, do we have the heart of the Father? Jesus tells the story, the parable of the prodigal son. When the son rebelled against the father, basically told the father, I want nothing to do with you, I wish you were dead, give me your inheritance so I can go spend it. And when the son, the rebellious son, came to his senses and returned to the father, the father did not say, vengeance is mine. The father ran out to meet him. Now, it's a parable, and I want to be clear, you pay attention to that story, you see that there's consequences for our actions. There can be limitations to what the person is entrusted with, okay? So I'm not saying that the relationship goes back to the way it was, but is the inclination of our heart towards reconciliation or vengeance? Is this conflict because I seek vengeance instead of restoration? Now, before David comes on the scene, in verse 5, you have this. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. You have two women. You have two women, Rahab and Ruth. Both of them are outsiders. I want to lean in here. I want you to lean in with me here. Rahab was a prostitute for the enemies of God's people, the Canaanites. Ruth, her line, the Moabites, were the, you can find this in Genesis 19, were the products of incest and the Moabites people would cast shame on them they were lots they were part of lots family find in genesis 19 ruth was a moabite rahab a prostitute <sighs> hmm and one of the things that's intriguing about this genealogy and about how we see their story is that both rahab and ruth are heroes both rahab and ruth are used of god In fact, without Rahab and Ruth, you would have no Messiah. It's part of the reasons why they're in the genealogy. Without Rahab and Ruth, you don't have Jesus. So Rahab and Ruth were both used by God, though evil had been done to them and evil had been done by them. They were used of God. And it is often specifically with those closest to us, that the evils done to us and the evils done by us are leveraged by family to bring about shame and accusation used to manipulate situations. You're just a no good. Well, you know, you're not like the other. You know, their spouse does these things, but you, you're just a horrible You know, how could God use someone like you? What's that? Shame. But Rahab and Ruth were both used of God. Though evil had been done to them and evil had been done by them, they did not allow the evils done to and by them to define them. There are many times where within family the conflict happens because someone in our family is keeping a record of wrongs. And at frequent opportunities, they put the record on the player and let it spin. And at the holidays, they turn up the volume. Don't you have a job yet? These kids of yours. How could you, know, I just, how could you do something like that? The scripture says that love keeps no record. Of wrongs, Again, this isn't Pollyanna to say that we ignore the wrongs done to us, but it is to say we are all put in positions of power because all of us can play the record That's right. in ways that are intended to bring about shame and accusation. And there are many of us who are experiencing conflict. Now, I want you to, boy, I need you to hear me. There are many of us who are experiencing conflict because we allow the evils done to us and the evils done by us to define us. We need to look the evils done to us right in the eyes. And we need to look at the evils we have done to others. We need to look at that right in the eyes. We don't bury it. We don't hide it. We don't, we don't say, well, it's, you know, it's all under the blood. we got to own it. That's right. But it cannot define us. There's a minister who was talking to his grandma and she was discovering uh, her genealogy and she was going through the list and she was looking at her mom, trying to find her mom in some old documents. And she came across a book of records and found her mom and next to her mom's name was Bastard Child. Now that can define us. There are some of us who say, I'm too messed up for God to redeem me. My family is too broken. There's a woman I know whose ministry is powerful. She has ministered to thousands. She has blessed and served so many. The Lord has used her in mighty ways. And She would have molested at a young age. And she doesn't sweep it away. She doesn't say it's not painful. She doesn't say, well, it's all under the blood. You know, it happened. She owns it. She says, it does not define me. I am the child of God. And though there has been an evil done to me, it is not me. Is the conflict because I am allowing the evils done to me or done by me to define me. Now, I want to encourage you in this. Uh, in the back of the seat in front of you is a, a ministry guide. Uh, there are two ministries I want to bring to mind now. One is called Mending the Soul. For those of us that have been hurt, for those of us who have experienced abuse, for those of us that need to find healing in those things, I want to encourage you to check out Mending the Soul. There are some that meet here at Desert Springs. Uh, for some of us, that may be very uncomfortable. And so I just want to say that there are many Mending the Soul groups around the valley, uh, and there should be a website there available to you. The second is Celebrate Recovery is excellent ministry for those of us who are dealing with hurts, habits, and hang-ups, who are dealing with addictive behaviors. And that meets every Tuesday night you can find more information in that ministry guide. Third, I want to say that we as a church family have relationships and agreements with multiple counselors, Christ-based counselors here in the Valley who are professional counselors. Uh, our pastoral staff generally does not do that level of counseling. We would rather encourage you to go with someone who has all the skills and the tools to bless you and to serve you, to help you find a path to healing. If you'd like to know more information or if you'd like to uh, be referred to one of those counselors, on the back of the ministry guide is the church office email and phone number. And you, can, you could even say, I'm asking for a friend, I'm asking for somebody. Uh, we'd be glad to give you those contacts or make those contacts uh, for you. How on earth does this genealogy help us? How on earth does this genealogy bring us healing? In verse 16 of the genealogy, And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. And that word Christ, that's not Jesus' last name. The Christ is a word, anointed one or redeemer. Redeemer. None of us got to choose the family that we were born into. No one has ever been able to choose the family that they're born into, except one Jesus, the sovereign king and creator of the universe, took on flesh and chose this family to be born into. None of us got to choose our families, but Jesus chose his family. Why on earth would Jesus choose this family? Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus is for each one of us. He redeems each one of us from our own brokenness. And also that means that he can redeem the mess in your family. Jesus Christ is the son of adulterers who was raised with the stigma of being a bastard You think those townspeople thought that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit? Jesus was the son of prostitutes who dined with sinners and tax collectors. Jesus was the son of manipulators who considered divine power not something to be used for his own benefit. Jesus is the son of abusers of power who gave up his power and took on the form of a servant. Jesus is the son of deceivers betrayed by one closest to him in Judas. Jesus is the son of outcasts who was taken outside of the city onto a hill called Golgotha. Jesus is the son of rapists and rape victims. And he was crucified naked and exposed, the object of ridicule and public shame. Jesus is the son of murderers who died at the hands of sinful men. Jesus is the son of broken families who rose from the grave, conquering over Satan's sin and death on the third day. Jesus is the son of messed up homes who redeems and unites all people into the household of God. When we experience conflict, it is a manifestation many times of something going on within us and Jesus is here to redeem us. Friends, for those of you that are far from God, would you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus? Would you believe in the good news of Jesus? For those who call Jesus Lord and Savior, would you cling to Jesus in the midst of your family conflict? He is ready, willing, and able to empower you to seek out these things.